Welcome back everyone to the 12th episode of the Millennial Investor Podcast. I hope everyone's doing great. Today, we have a very special guest with us, Professor Joe Fitter. Professor, I've been following quite a few of your posts, as I mentioned earlier. Um, you have really interesting views in the market, very much backed by research and fundamentals, and that'll be the core of our conversations today. But uh, before we begin, I'd like to welcome you to the podcast, and I hope you're doing good. Great. Thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity to come and uh, address your audience. I think it's a great thing for young people to get out there and learn how to invest and how to invest wisely and then uh, develop their skills and capabilities uh, to last a lifetime. So happy to help. Absolutely. That's really the goal we have. And it's amazing to have you here. As a student of finance, you know, I've been following the markets uh, pretty thoroughly. And I can see that we're really living in a time where I don't think my generation, we've experienced this sort of market. So the changes in the last two to three years, I guess, with I guess with so many variables that are present in deciding the market trajectory, um, I'd like to start off by speaking about really what the elephant in the room is today. That's inflation. It was a term where, again, people from my age, it was virtually non-existent. Now it has really come back with a bang, 40-year-old, 40 40-year uh, high. How do you think it's shaped the markets that we are in today? Well, I think the inflation is, uh, first of all, um, the inflation will be here for a while. There's two things that are happening that I think are driving inflation. And just from a very high level macro view, uh, number one, we have scarcity of items, whether that's commodities or homes or cars or computer chips. We have scarcity because of the pandemic. The pandemic has created scarcity uh, because factories across the globe have had to shut down when there have been outbreaks of COVID. And of course, because of shutdown, there's no production. And when there's no production, that means there's no supply. So it's very much at this stage been a supply-driven, I'll call that the spark. But what has poured gasoline on the fire once the spark was ignited because of the scarcity driven by COVID is a demographic bubble. If you look at the millennial cohort, you are a very large cohort. You are entering a point in your lives where you are spending money. You have disposable income, perhaps from a first job. You're starting to potentially uh, find spouses and get married. Uh, you know, At some point, you're buying homes and you're seeing home prices soar because of that. And if we look back at the last decade since the global financial crisis, um, there were the earlier or the older cohort of whatever we want to call them, millennials, Gen Zs. Uh, the older cohort was uh, pretty limited in their ability to buy homes at that point uh, because of loss of income or lack of income. They're now at the life stage where they really need to buy a home. They have kids. They're in an income situation where they can afford to buy a home. And so you've seen that demographic really push home prices higher. Of course, home prices also were uh, pushed higher because of a lack of development of new homes coming off that financial crisis. So mm-hmm. you've got these dichot- uh, these, these um, what I'll say, um, uh, dual, um, uh, you know, dual drivers in the economy that are driving things like housing, you know, uh, oil prices, oil prices, energy. We can say that the electric vehicle craze is starting, but it's in its infancy. And the reality is the world is still powered by oil. And when we have the possibility of disruption from places like Iraq, where there has been a limit on the amount of oil that they can export, or places like Ukraine and Russia, where oil and natural gas flow through, um, that's going to create price pressure 
on oil. And so you have you know, a confluence of rising prices. I don't think it's going to go away anytime soon. The Fed initially said this was transitory, but I think that if we look back at the 1970s as an example, which is the most recent spate of serious inflation, um, the Fed uh, alluded to the same thing then. In the late 60s, they said, well, inflation is going to be transitory. And it turned out that it would last a decade until Volcker came in and hiked interest rates to you know, well past double digits. And then eventually that calmed the market and inflation and, and we move forward. So I think inflation is here to stay. Uh, the question will be uh, how high it goes. Seven and a half percent is getting to be uncomfortable. We hit double digit inflation uh, back in the 70s and early 80s. I hope we don't go there, but it looks like we might. Uh, the Fed has been very slow to respond. They have been what we'll call measured. Uh, Powell and Yellen are neither of them are known to be hawkish. They tend to be what we call dovish, which means they they generally uh, don't mind if inflation runs a little bit hotter. They tend to be accommodative, um, and and maybe they're right in being accommodative. Uh, look, we're not out of the pandemic yet. We have global economic issues in China. We have global economic issues created by Russia and the Ukraine. Um, you know, the world is not the same as it was a year ago or two years ago, and I think it's going to take some time to work through this. I do think the Fed needs to take action, and they need to take action in 2022 pretty quickly. In fact, I was surprised they didn't take action in January or February, although they said very clearly that we're going to take action in March, and it looks like they're going to take action in March. So that's the story. I think inflation is here to stay for a while. Uh, it's going to be a challenge because I think that the inflation rate will be higher than the wage rate, and so we'll all feel the pinch in our pocketbooks. Um, those who are retired and don't have a source of income, which I know aren't your read, your audience necessarily, but those folks are going to feel the pain as well because they don't have a, an opportunity to, to increase their wages. But for young people, um, you know what, what can you expect? Well, you can expect the cost of everything you buy uh, to go up over time. And it'll probably be that way in 2022, probably in 2023 as well. I don't know about 2024. I think uh, inflation will probably subside in a couple of years. But again, we're not through the pandemic yet. We may see further economic slowdown if yeah. China continues their policy of zero COVID, which is very detrimental, You know, locking down cities and millions and millions of people. Uh, and if some other countries continue that approach, that's going to be really hard to start the economy and to make sure the supply continues to get more robust. So we'll have to see. It's uh, looking like rough waters ahead, and I'm, I'm not very bullish right now. Absolutely. I think dovishness has been a theme for a very long time for the Fed. I'm actually really surprised that they're still buying mortgage-backed securities despite the, despite the growth in housing prices. And I think it was very clear that okay, the Fed is far behind. For so long, they've held the narrative that inflation is transitory. It's almost unfashionable to use a word today and because it has really become a joke. It's not transitory. It's, it's there. It's real. And it has somewhat taken people from, with surprise, I'd say. But to what extent do you think inflation has really gotten out of the Fed's hands? Well, I think the Fed uh, can control inflation. I think the question is, what is the cost of controlling inflation? It's this balancing act between a robust economy and stopping inflation. They could very easily step on the inflation stop pedal by raising rates two, three, four percent from where they are today. And that would certainly stop inflation, but it would also stop the economy. 
mm-hmm. demand side would be crippled. The issue right now is mostly supply side. It's yeah. mostly supply. The supply chain is not healthy. Uh, we have trouble getting cargo from China. The ports are backed up. The factories have been shut down. Um, it's really at this stage a supply issue. So raising rates to stamp out demand to match a lower supply might not be the right answer. Mm-hmm. And the answer might be let inflation run hot for two years. The thing the Fed's never said is how long is transitory? Define what that means. Yeah. Is that one quarter? Is that one month? Is that, you know, for a typical 20 year old, two years is 10% of your life. But two years is transitory potentially in the scheme of things, in the scheme of an economic cycle, which tends to be seven to 10 years. In fact, economic cycles now are more like 10 to 12 years in duration. So transitory is just a phrase. It's a toss away phrase. What we really need to understand is how long will inflation be around and what what will be the end result? You know, if we have seven and a half percent per year inflation over two years, we're at about 15 or 16 percent higher prices than we are today. Let's let's keep it in mind. If we're three or four years, then we're 25 or 30 percent higher prices than we are today. At what point can we handle that and at what point do we get worried? So I, I think that's something to keep in mind. Absolutely. What also really interests me is that the Fed is in immense debt. It has been for a long time, but with higher interest rates, even their payments will go up. Would you say it's it makes more sense in with that, with keeping that in mind? to raise rates, or will it be more beneficial to focus on spending to reduce the supply chain bottlenecks that are one of the biggest factors in inflation today? I I don't think more stimulus will fix the supply chain. No, okay. So I think we're awash with money. There's plenty of money out there that's going into stupid things like PPP loans, where the owners of a business buy a Lamborghini. You know, that's not beneficial to anyone, but you read about that. And there's plenty of what I'll call fraud as a result of that kind of stimulus. Um, The difference in the global financial crisis, the stimulus that was applied then compared to the stimulus that it's applied in, in 2020, 2021, the global financial crisis, the stimulus stayed with the banks. It never got into the economy directly. And so that's why that stimulus was not inflationary. This went into the hands of the average citizen. And of course, you saw the silly spending that happened, you know, um, a a wide range of things. So, you know, my opinion is that the the stimulus approach this time was a little bit too rich, a little bit too uh, lucrative for the individual. And that's spurred on this inflation. Of course, you turn off the stimulus valve. People have to go back to work. Mm -hmm. They realize how expensive things have gotten. And I think inflation may naturally come down. Yeah. So first of all, I don't. So back to your original question, I don't think the Fed spending on fixing the supply chain or stimulus money to fix the supply chain will fix it. Okay. The supply chain doesn't exist in the United States; it exists around the world, and it's going to take getting rid of COVID to really fix the supply chain mm-hmm. and having factories across China and the rest of the world, India, open up. So that's my that's my perspective on on you know how do we how do we tamp down inflation, I think it's fixed the supply chain, but that won't work through stimulus. So following on that question, COVID is reducing by quite a a high percentage as we're going on. Uh, Restrictions are set to reduce as well. Keeping that in mind, is it necessary to, you know, I think the projected amount of rate hikes is five to seven. Is that really necessary when COVID restrictions themselves are going to be reducing in the next um, year or so by quite a high margin? 
I think the answer is yes, because again, there's two factors that are driving inflation. One factor is the supply chain. The other factor is demographic, in my opinion. And I think the demographic aspect is the aspect that needs to be slowed down. I think that's that's the aspect where the rate hikes will cut get us back to what we'll call a normal cost of borrowing. You know, the the cost of borrowing right now is is very low. It's artificially low because of the pandemic. Once we get past the pandemic, let's go back to reality of three or four years ago where we had a three percent ten year bond. You know, a two and a half percent a two year bond. I think that's the cost of money is more reasonable at those levels mm-hmm. to support the economy. Unless we're in a crisis situation again, I think things need to go up quite a bit from here. So seven rate hikes at 25 basis points per rate height will put us at 1.75% above where we are today. Mm-hmm. We're currently at 2% on the 10 year bond. So 1.75% further will be 3.75. Is that overshooting? It might be, but let's see. Uh, the last time we were at 3%, the inflation rate was only 3%. The inflation yeah. rate is more than double that now. So uh, 3.75% 3. Uh, uh, may be reasonable. That's still a negative return. Yeah. If inflation is 7.5% and we're at three and three quarters on the 10-year, that's still a negative return for investors. And so you know, at some point, reality has to come home. I don't know that we'll get there uh, in 2022, uh, we'll probably get to 4%, three and a half to 4% in 2023. I'm pretty confident of that. From there, let's see what happens. Uh, you know, the problem with this is no one can predict or forecast oh, yeah. interest rates. Uh, you know, if a war breaks out in Russia, who knows what the world economy will do to respond to that? We may find ourselves in an easing cycle just as we finished hiking rates. And we actually found ourselves in that scenario in 2018. Right, the Fed overshot and they hiked rates one too many times, and the fourth quarter of 2018 was disastrous because of that. And so, uh, you know, and then the Fed began to ease again. And so, I, I think we need to watch closely. The Fed historically does not thread the needle; they mm-hmm. historically under or over deliver. Yeah. So let's just be aware of that and know what the ramification is. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think the Fed has the mark when it's come to controlling inflation in the past, but pivoting towards stocks a little bit now you know markets have been seeing a lot of volatility especially since the start of the year they're well off their all-time highs how many rate hikes do you think are priced into the stock market today and um, how these additional rate hikes affect the market so i i think realistically there's probably five rate hikes forecasted and baked into the market it doesn't really matter if there's five or six or seven I think the market, uh, you know, if you look at valuation, historical PE, uh, a fair value on the market is probably between thirty-seven fifty on the S and P five hundred and and four thousand. Um, I think we can easily fall forty-two fifty was my near-term number uh, in the market over the course of the last month or so. Uh, X Russia. And Ukraine, I think if you start factoring in what could happen with Russia and Ukraine, you could see a very easy path to you know that that lower range of 37, 37, 50. But I think that that would be a worst case scenario. I think that uh, we'll probably boggle around here. Q1 and Q2 will be very boring. People are not accustomed to years where the market is down five to 7% per year. We might finish the year down 10 to 12% from where we started the year. And that would be a fairly typical mean reversion. So, um, you know, it's not so much 
what's factored or what's not factored. It's the surprise factor that we have to worry about. And I think the surprise factor, you know, with the, you know, the potentiality for Ukraine doing something or China doing something with Taiwan after the Olympics, we just don't know. Um, Mm -hmm. If the world is distracted in Ukraine, uh, China may go and and try something in Taiwan. They certainly took advantage of the pandemic to take over Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the communists swept into Hong Kong and now Hong Kong has, has fallen, if you will. And, would you say a 0.5% increase in March would also suffice as a surprise factor for the market? No, I don't think so. I think a half percentage point, you might even get a relief rally because the Fed's okay. actually finally taking action and they're taking strict action. I think the world is more scared of inflation than they are scared of losing stimulus. I mean, for those who've lived through inflation, it is way worse than any economic boom and the stimulus euphoria that you get. Inflation is really, really probably the biggest single threat to an economy that I can think of uh, other than war. Um, And so I think that uh, seeing a half point hike in March um, followed by another half point hike in April or May, I think would be probably good for the market. I think the market would breathe a little bit of, of relief. It would be painful, but I think uh, versus this slow and steady, I think we saw what happened with the slow and steady. It doesn't always work. I think the market needs a little bit more reality. And some of that's going to depend on how quickly the economy opens with COVID. If cases continue to drop, you may see factories coming back online, supply being fixed, which gives the Fed a lot more room to fix the yeah. demand side with through rate hikes. So we'll have to watch that and see. Yeah, absolutely. So past two, three years, tech companies, you know, NVIDIA, Lucid, extremely high flying stocks. They face so many tailwinds, mainly because of very low inflation and interest rates. They're so much based on their valuation, uh, discount cash from the future, rather than current fundamentals. Historically, in times of high inflation and high interest rates, Traditional stocks, you know, lower price to uh, PE ratios, higher book to market ratios have done better. Do you see a rotation towards the more traditional stocks, towards the Dow stocks um, in today's time? Yeah, that's actually already happened. That's been happening since probably Q3 of 2021. We started seeing a significant rotation out of growth into value. We've seen the likes of the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Uh, fall less than the NASDAQ on any given day that the markets had a bad day. Mm -hmm. Um, You're seeing the valuations of some of the tech high flyers come down dramatically, you know, Facebook or Meta rather, losing 25% value in a day as an example. Peloton, the big loss that they had, you know, as there are many examples out there that you can cite. Part of the reason that the traditional, you know, what I'll call industrial oriented stocks are do better in a higher inflation, higher interest rate environment is they tend to have pricing power. They can raise prices, you know, people still need, you know, shampoo, they still need, you know, automobiles, they still need to a computer to go to class. And so there's pricing power in those kind of companies. And um, those types of items tend to be consumer cyclical or sorry, uh, consumer uh, oriented stock uh, mm-hmm. companies that you know consumers will continue to buy. Look at the tobacco companies as another example. You know, tobacco companies are one that I've been watching personally, and this is not a recommendation for investment or investment advice, but I look at tobacco companies anytime there's fear of higher interest rates, higher costs and recession, people continue to smoke. Uh, whether there's a recession or not, they continue to eat, they continue to smoke, they continue to drink alcohol, you know, and so those kinds of companies, very traditional defensive stocks tend to do fairly well 
in an inflationary environment. And so that's where, you know, if you want to position your portfolio, that's where you might tilt. But I will say that I'm a boring investor. I tend to be a total market investor over the long term, buy and hold. It's not timing the market, it's time in the market. And as a result of that, you know, I own some technology that will go down. I own some consumer cyclical that will go up. On balance, I am a believer in the American way. And there's going to be years where we have 23% return like we had in 2021. And there are going to be years where we have down 23%. And that's just part of it. And if you're in it for the long term, if you're a long-term investor, you'll stand to do well just being in the market. So, you know, I I, I think there's been a, a migration toward trading and trying to time the market, trying to a stock pick. I think that's fun. Um, I did that when I was young and then I learned that there's a better way. And so uh, I don't take that approach any longer. Um, I studied the empirical data as a finance professor. There are very, very few stock pickers that over five years can be successful. I don't care if you pick GameStop. I don't care if you picked AMC at the bottom. Uh, you know, show me the long-term trend and long-term trend. Uh, Warren Buffett even says it, you know, go buy the S&P 500, stick it away for 40 years and come out the other end very wealthy. So I'm part of that crowd. The boring, uh, what is that? The boomers? I'm not a boomer, but what is that? Okay, boomer. But uh, I'll take it because the okay boomers tend to be rich. Uh, I learned my lesson, you know, also when I was younger, I learned my lesson in the first dot-com era. I was uh, not much older than you were, and I was buying the high flyers and selling, and we all thought we were going to be millionaires in 1999. Then 2000 hit, and uh, it was uh, it was ugly. So, uh, you know, lessons learned from history. Um, so that's something I want to encourage young people to do is to study history. You mentioned at the top of the podcast, you've never been through this inflationary period. Read a book or two about what was like, what the economy was like. You can get a lot of insights. History doesn't repeat, but it often rhymes. And so we can learn from that playbook over and over again. We become better investors by studying that history. That's a very important thing you said. Um, personally, someone who has been in growth stocks for quite a while, would you say now is the time to really get into and understand value investing, which for a very long period of time just wasn't the case? Um, you know, I everyone's different. Um, I personally have always loved value investing. Okay. Um, when I was young, I did chase the high flyer growth stocks, but I was always a value investor. I always had my eye for that, perhaps because one of my idols was Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. You know, running Berkshire Hathaway, very value oriented. And um, I just really admired their approach of finding value where others didn't find value. Um, also, the economic times that are in front of us tend to support value. We know interest rates are going up, we know inflation is going up. That tends to be a place to be. It's not cool companies. They're not sexy. They're not the latest electric vehicle. They're not crypto, this, that, or the other. They're boring. They're yeah. Dairy Queen. You know, how exciting is Dairy Queen? Not very exciting oh, unless you're making money, right? <laughs> unless you're making money. The name of the game is make money. It doesn't matter what you're buying, make money. Yeah. How exciting are tobacco stocks? I don't smoke, right? I'm not interested in tobacco, but I know they make money hand over fist and it doesn't matter what the economy is doing. And so to me, I think value investing is interesting because it opens our eyes to things that may not be the shiny, bright, glittery object. They're yeah. kind of boring but they also can make you a lot of money. So yeah, I, I like value investing. I think it's fun. It's also fundamental. You can practice your financial skills on value companies, uh, valuing the company's intrinsic cash flows. It's hard to do that with a growth company. What is that terminal value? We have no idea. Yeah. And so much of it is just whatever the market's willing to pay. Whereas fundamental value investing, I think, allows you to use those fundamental finance skills to identify those 
diamonds in the rough and invest and stick with them for three, four, five years and, you know, come out the other side with a lot of money, maybe. So what, what are some key tips you have to really find a, a great value stock in the market today? So buy what you know. Okay. That's very important. Buy what you know. If you like a product, investigate the company that makes the product. And if you truly believe in the product, buy the product. Number one. Number two, I think that value is right in front of us every day and we just sort of take it for granted. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, an example that I'll use is a company like Clorox, boring company. I'm sorry, Clorox, but pretty boring. They make cleaning supplies, but then a pandemic comes along and everybody needs to go buy bleach. Suddenly this (laughs) stock is on fire. It's, it's acting like a growth company. We know that's temporary. We know pandemics don't last forever. So we know the valuation is going to come back down to earth. Yeah. So when it comes back down, how far down does it go? And if it goes below where it was before the pandemic, that might be a value. That might be a buy. So I think no, you know, um, buy what you know. Um, I think that I also uh, tend to not be a stock picker. I okay. tend to okay. buy the whole market. So if there's a, you know, there's value companies in the market and growth companies and how you define that, mm-hmm. perhaps it's by PE or price to book. You know, buy the whole sector or buy the entire market. Don't try to pick because you might be wrong. Chances are you will be wrong. Yeah. The odds are high that you could be wrong. 50-50 shot. So if you buy the overall market and you believe there's a tilt to value, that's probably a safer place to be. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So my final question is uh, somewhat more about the market in general. After a very long time, the Fed is actually reducing their balance sheet, aiming to reduce their balance sheet and raising interest rates together. As you said, you know, historically, the Fed hasn't been able to push down inflation this high without a recession. And there are many tells of an upcoming slowdown, uh, especially with the yield curve flattening. Do you personally think that we're in for a slowdown or maybe even a recession in the future? Yes, I do. Uh, It's not a common perspective at this stage, but if I look at the impact of seven rate hikes or six rate hikes or five rate hikes and how long it takes for a typical rate hike to work through the economy, I think that it normally takes six months for a rate hike to work through the economy. So if we're doing rate hikes over the course of the next year or year and a half, say a quarter point each quarter. I think if we look a couple of years out, there's probability that there's going to be enough pressure that we land in recession. Will it be a deep recession? Probably not. It will be a Fed-induced recession. Um, things will slow down. Um, what could keep us out of recession? And by the way, when I say recession, I mean technical recession, mm-hmm. two quarters of negative growth. Yeah. And that's simply because the rate shock, the rate hike, you know, call it the taper tantrum, whatever you want to call it. This combination of unwinding the Fed's balance sheet plus hiking interest rates could land us in a technical recession. But it won't be one of these deep recessions like we saw in uh, 2008 or the uh, 1990s or a, the 1982 recession was also a, a deep one. Um, I think it'll be a very modest recession, a shallow recession where the economy resets to life after the pandemic. So as quickly as Mm -hmm. the recession hit, when the pandemic hit, we're liable to see another one of those when we come out 
the punch bowl is taken away. We all have a hangover from all that money, all that stimulus money. And we're like, well, we better not party for the next two, two quarters. And, you know, we sort of get through that. And then I think the economy, barring a, a world uh, military political event, yeah. I think the economy will, will, will get back on track. You think strong corporate earnings, which we're seeing, and a very strong uh, consumer will mitigate probably the effects of a potential recession? Um, I think the strong consumer is a misnomer. Okay. I think the, the consumer is strong right now, but I don't think the consumer will remain strong in 2022. I think the consumer has been strong because of stimulus money, child care credits. And when that money all goes away, the consumer is going to have to go back to work and they're going to have to make money. And I think they're going to rein in their spending, especially when they realize that things like rent and food are costing more. Their paychecks, their disposable income, how they spend may get conservative because they're worried about uh, inflation and the rising costs of things. So rather than going on vacation to Disney, they're going to use that money to pay for gas for their car and food to put on the table and their rent. And so I think that's going to impact certain sectors and, of course, cause those sectors to slow down. In fact, those are the very sectors who have struggled through the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So this whole concept of opening or reopening stocks, I'm not so convinced they're going to be strong beyond an initial pop. I think there's really some headwinds ahead for those companies. Okay. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And um, Professor, that's actually all the questions I had for today. Um, okay. This has been really, really insightful, actually. I've got a, me, myself, I've got a lot of perspective um, after speaking to you. So thank you so much for that. And thank you so much for um, agreeing to come on to the podcast today. Very good. And I don't want to depress people by the whole idea of, you know, I'm bearish and the market could come down and we could be heading for a recession. That's all part of the normal economic cycle. In fact, in some ways, we could argue that that's healthy. It clears out the bad companies. How many companies now are operating that are actually zombie? The only reason they're operating is because money was cheap. We need to clear those out. We need to get to good, strong companies. And sometimes a short, quick recession is just what the doctor ordered. So what I'll say is, you know, overall, long term, it's up and to the right. Yep. You know, and uh, and I'm confident in the American way. So, you know, we'll get through this rough patch just like we have for the last 200 and something years. Yeah, I think a great example is actually the dot-com bubble. So many tech companies just got wiped out, but the outcome was strong companies like Amazon, uh, Google, Apple coming out and really being a force that they are today. So that's true. Yeah, that's it, right. It is, it is necessary. But yeah, it was great having you. Okay. And, thank you so much. Thank you so much. And that brings us to the end of the 12th episode. I hope all of you really enjoyed this and learned where the market is today and its direction so you can choose your investments in the best possible way. That's a wrap for today. See you guys next time. Stay safe and uh, thank you for tuning in.